in the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. When we think about Paul's story, we often think that we have it in order. We get the bullet points right, but there's one thing we get wrong. So we think, okay, he's born in Tarsus. Uh, Then he moved to Jerusalem to study as a young teenager. We know that he was this star student, which he sort of subtly reminds us of, that he was kind of outranking his fellow peers. He didn't say, hey, I'm a great student, but he just said he was advancing beyond his peers in Judaism. So we know that he was a star. And then we know that when he's young, maybe early, mid-20s, he begins leading the persecution against the early Christian church. And then we know the road to Damascus bit, right? That he's on the road to Damascus, And then he has this encounter with Jesus. And then after this, he starts leading, teaching in Antioch and writing the letters that make up a quarter of the New Testament and his missionary journeys and whatnot. But what we don't know, what we miss is that there is a gap in there that from Damascus to the writing of Galatians or 1 Thessalonians, people disagree on which was his first letter, but from the the sort of conversion, this is a loaded term, but from that Damascus road to the writing of the first letter, was somewhere around 14 years. Um, And so there's some accounted for on either end of this, but there are about 10 missing years in the story of Paul where you have virtually nothing recorded. So what on earth is Paul doing during these missing 10 years? So here's the story. We're going to build it in order and then see if we can sort of throw um, grappling hooks from either, either of the sort of blurry edges of his story. We're going to kind of toss uh, a few like chains into the deep and see if we can pull some stuff back from his story. So here's his story. He's on the road to Damascus. We talked about this uh, two or three weeks ago when I preached on that in the last sermon. And then he has this encounter with Jesus on the road, right? He's blinded, led blind by the hand to Damascus. And then a believer comes to him and prays over him, and now he can see. And in the course of just a few days, the most feared persecutor of the church was changed. Some people would say he converted. Uh, And then shortly, he would become the most influential propagator of the faith in the entire history of the church. But you don't just make that kind of flip, right? First, he has a lot of processing to do. Uh, I don't know if you guys have ever felt this. So I, I, um, I started listening to audiobooks four or five years ago. It was great. I highly recommend it. Um... I started listening to audiobooks, and, and I would often listen to them whenever I got in the car. But I realized if I had a difficult day or if I had something big or momentous that happened, I wasn't able to focus on the audiobook. So I'd hit play, you know, and listen for just 10 or 15 seconds. And it was like the static in my brain got so loud that I had to hit pause because I couldn't, I couldn't listen to new information without first processing whatever the big event was that was going on. And that's just a small thing, right? A day-to-day thing. Uh, But I think Paul is doing this, but in a much more momentous way. So it's hard to process, uh, in Paul's case, Paul is a genius. He's got a lot going on in his brain, and it's hard for him to process. And in his one-week-old faith in Damascus, he's already the most equipped to teach. So after his conversion experience uh, on the way to Damascus, he gets out of town. It's like he needs to get away from it all, not just to have a few minutes in the car to process. He needs weeks, right? He needs some kind of a pilgrimage, some kind of a silence where he can re-angle and re-look at his entire life. So where did he go? And this is wild. It says in Galatians and in 2 Corinthians that he went to Arabia, like Saudi Arabia. So why on earth would Paul go to Arabia? So Arabia is kind of a difficult 
word in that it could be right next door to Damascus, the kingdom right next door, or it could be all the way down basically on the doorstep of Egypt, just a whole swath of land that all counts as Arabia. So many assume that he went next door to the neighboring kingdom of Arabia, that he, you know, his charge, as Jesus had told him on the road, was to share with the Gentiles. And, you know, where do you get more Gentiles than across the the river there in in Arabia. And so uh, some people, for a long time, if you ever read an older book on Paul, they'll almost always say he converted and then he got out of town right away to start sharing the gospel. And we don't have record of it, but that's what he was doing was like an evangelistic trip in Arabia. Uh, But that's probably not true. Uh, What makes more sense is that he is using Arabia. He only uses the word twice in all of his letters. And the presumption is that he's using it in the same sense both times. And the other time, the only other time Paul uses the word Arabia, he is talking about Mount Sinai, the Mount Sinai where the Ten Commandments were delivered to Moses, where the law was delivered. Uh, it's, it's where the people of Israel were given this covenant, this charge, this dedication to God. So Paul comes to Christ, we might say, and then all of a sudden skips town to Arabia. And if you read between the lines, it's pretty clear that he went deep into Arabia, down to Mount Sinai, where the Israelites got the Ten Commandments and the law, and where Moses and the people were commissioned to then go toward the Promised Land. Uh, so uh, everything, you know, he had been committing these zealous acts of violence, and he was on his way to Damascus to hunt Christians. Then he meets Christ, and now everything's kind of upside down. Everything's wrong. Uh, and so he goes on this pilgrimage to Sinai, the sort of center of Jewish identity, to try to figure out what in the world he's supposed to be doing. So imagine <clears throat> this one mountain, this one mountain has had both Moses and Saul, Paul, both sort of having these, I mean, basically the two of the most influential le- religious leaders in the history of the world have both gone to this place atop it alone to try to figure out what's next. So Paul makes what we would call it a pilgrimage today. So do you guys remember Paul's heroes from earlier? There were two. We, put, we talked mostly about one of them who was less familiar. His name was Finchas, who was this sort of religious zealot who committed violent acts in order to preserve the faith. Well, the other one who we didn't discuss as much was Elijah. You've read a lot more about Elijah. You've heard of him. He's one of the great prophets of the Old Testament. Now, this is where it gets interesting and where scholars are pretty sure that Paul went to Sinai, because it's also the exact same place that Elijah fled to when he was having a crisis of identity. Uh, So after the famous confrontation that we love to tell, and it's in our children's Bibles and whatnot, the famous confrontation with Elijah and the prophets of Baal or Baal, Elijah comes under the scrutiny of Jezebel, who is, of course, uh, unfortunately given her name to a lot of the misogyny in the church uh, that, you know, people get called a Jezebel if they don't like him or whatever. But Jezebel is kind of one of the most wicked characters in the Old Testament. And she was a worshiper of Baal. And Elijah, of course, in this amazing show, uh, this amazing miracle, is able to perform a miracle that the, the prophets of Baal are not. Uh, and then where our children's Bibles end, but where the actual story keeps going, is that the people then kill all of the prophets of Baal because they're false prophets. So now Jezebel, the queen, is very angry at Elijah, and she, and she is sending all these people to essentially hunt him. She's sending assassins to go get him. And so Elijah is really bummed, right? He just had this, the high of his life, right, this amazing victory. Uh, he showed all this violent zeal and preserved the faith. 
But now here he is running for his life. And where he runs is Mount Sinai. If you read the account, uh, some people call it Mount Horeb. There's a big debate. It's probably the same mountain, but they called it Horeb for a while. Anyway, he runs to Mount Sinai to pray and to get direction. Now, people have heard this story, but they forget where he is. It's there where Elijah ends up hearing this still small voice, right? We've heard this story, right, where, you know, God, Elijah is basically begging God, like, why, why is this happening to me? And then, of course, there's the hurricane and the tornado and the firestorm and all these massive feats of sort of uh, cataclysms and events happen in front of him. But then out of this quiet, this peace, this still small voice, he gets his direction. Uh, and what he's told to do, get this, is go to Damascus. You can see how all of these threads are kind of coming together. Elijah's told to go to Damascus and proclaim two new kings. One king was going to be of the Gentile kingdom of Syria, and one king was going to be a Jewish king of the Jewish kingdom. So interesting. Here Saul, or Paul, is showing zeal. He kills what he thinks are false believers and then everything goes wrong. I'm, by the way, I'm taking a lot of this. Uh, this book is, is quite fascinating. It's where uh, I'd say at least half of the research of this sermon series is coming from. N.T. Wright, Paul. That's all it's called. It's a biography of Paul from N.T. Wright. So I'm taking uh, this sermon pretty heavily from this. So I just want to give credit where credit is due. So uh, everything goes wrong for Paul. He goes to Sinai just like his hero, Elijah. And funnily enough, he gets the exact same commissioning from God he is told to go back to Damascus as well because there's a new king to proclaim. But instead of Elijah proclaiming one king over the Gentiles and one king over the Jew, uh, the Jews, of course, now Paul is claiming one king over the entire world. Gentile and Jews together will all be under one king, one throne, who is Jesus. So this uh, coming to Jesus and this trip to Mount Sinai, then back, probably happened within three to six months. But then it says that he stayed in Damascus. And if you do all the timelines, you figure out that he stayed a while, probably two or two and a half years. And as often happened, Paul makes enemies. So Paul tends to go out and teach and preach. And he, again, he's a genius and he likes to debate. So he gets himself into trouble. Uh, so he's teaching and preaching but he makes enemies. The Jews don't like him because he's preaching what they think is heresy. And the pagans do not like him because all of this stuff about all nations coming under one king sounds like insurrection, right? To the Romans, only Caesar was Lord. And Paul is saying, no, there's only one Lord and his name is Jesus Christ. He's a crucified Jewish itinerant minister. So here you're a Roman. You're saying only Caesar is Lord. Everyone you know, bows to him. And Paul's like, no, actually, only Jesus is Lord and all nations will bow to him. So he sounds like an insurrectionist, like he's actually threatening the government. Even though that's not his goal necessarily, it, he sounds like that. And that's just part of the reason, too, that Pilate was so nervous about Jesus. So the guards and officials in Damascus are on high alert to catch Paul. And the gates of the city, if you read the scriptures, this is a fun account uh, the gates of the city are closed and there is no way to get in or out. You know, ancient cities had these tall walls to sort of save them in times of armies coming after them. And so they'd uh, had these high stone walls that they could completely close up. And so they completely closed down the city to keep Paul in so they could go find him. Except there were cities that had built these tall walls and then what's the best way to beat a city you can't really get in? It's to starve it. So a lot of ancient uh, warfare happened by... Uh, 
laying a siege, laying siege to a city or besieging. And so what you do is instead of trying to conquer a city that's surrounded by walls, they could just dump, you know, burning stuff and arrows and whatever on you all day long. Instead, they would just go a mile out and surround the city and not let any water or food get in or out. And you just wait there for 90 or 120 days and everyone inside starts starving. And then they come to terms real quick. So they come out and say, fine, fine, you know, we forgive or we, uh, we what's the word? We throw the white towel or whatever we, uh, there's a word for that. Surrender, thank you. I'm like, what is the word? <laughs> so they're like, we surrender. <laughs> uh, you know, let us have food and water again and we'll be your subjects or whatever. Uh, so as a, as a way to avoid that happening, they started building at the very tops of these walls, they built small holes so that they could let baskets up and down. Think of a basket that might be able to fit 100 pounds of bread and, and water and food and things like that. So it is really hard to surround. You can surround all the roads around a city, but if you're a mile outside the city, it's really hard to form an entire perimeter. You'd need a lot of soldiers to do that. So the idea is that if a city got besieged, that there are people who could sneak out at night through one of these you know, bread basket holes or someone could sneak up to the city with food and then they could sort of pull it up through a pulley and keep the people inside alive. Anyway, long story short here, uh, Paul is said to be a small man and he escapes through one of these baskets. So he stuffs himself in one of these baskets and they lower him through the side of this basket hole in the wall. So there is a, this is not scripture. We don't know exactly how right this is, but the early church, about 100 years after the scriptures were written down, uh, wrote this story of Paul. There's some good stuff in it and some of it's clearly wrong. So we're not really sure how to take it, but there's a description that has lived on of what Paul looked like. So let me read this to you. It says, he was small in size, bald-headed, bow-legged, well-built, with eyebrows that met, rather long-nosed, and full of grace. So this is what the early church remembered that Paul looked like. It kind of sounds like the guy who could be a genius, but who maybe people wouldn't think too well of, right? And you see that all throughout his letters, right? That he's like, when I'm in person, I don't make that big of an impression. And maybe I'm not a great speaker, but I know stuff. And like, fine, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not Apollo. So I'm not this super apostle who can just slay everyone with my speaking. Um, but that this, I think this is right. This seems to fit. Small in size, bald-headed, <laughs> bow-legged. But I like the well-built thing is what gets me. That's why I think this is true, that he's small and short and like an awkward-looking with a unibrow. Um, <laughs> But it says he's well-built. So he would have spent eight to 10 hours a day building, uh, you know, cutting leather, hammering, you know, working with his hands all day long on this tent-making venture that kept him alive for much of his life, that kept him, you know, making some, some money. Uh, so being able to work as a manual laborer, though he might have been small and awkward, he would not have been a weak person, right? The kind of grip strength on a guy like that would be nothing to sneeze at. So when it says he's small in size, bald-headed, bow-legged, but well-built, I'm like, you know, this seems to strike me as, as right. So that's how you can remember Paul. Small, bald, bow-legged, well-built, with eyebrows that met, uh, long-nosed, and full of grace. Okay, so he gets down in this basket, and he goes to Jerusalem, the same place he had come from three years before to then go attack Christians. Now he goes back to Jerusalem as a Christian, but things are cautious there. A lot of people know who Paul is. So he stays with Peter, but keeps it on the down low. And during that time, he also meets with Barnabas and then the preeminent leader of the church, even more than Peter, is James, the brother of Jesus. It becomes very quick, very uh, obvious early in the New Testament that James eclipses Peter in 
leadership, which is a little bit awkward. The Catholics will say that, you know, the, Peter is the first pope. If anyone's the first pope, it's James, actually. Uh, he's clearly the strongest, most important leader early in the church. Anyway, Paul starts getting into trouble, debating publicly, as is his custom. And so Jerusalem's like, hey, you know, we've had all these turmoils and troubles, and they're coming after us, which, you know, you kind of started three years ago. We don't want that to start up again. So why don't you leave town? So they put him on a boat back to Tarsus. And that moment is when you click start on the 10-year clock. That's the 10-year clock of lost time. We have no, almost no idea in terms of a direct, literal, hey, this is what happened during this time. He does not tell us what happens during that time, although we can make some decent guesses. We only have one direct glimpse ever in Scripture of what's happening during that time. And that's because in 2 Corinthians, Paul writes about a time 14 years earlier when such and such happened. I'm going to read this scripture in a second. And if you do the math on when he was writing that, that was smack dab right in the middle of these lost 10 years. So let me read this passage from 2 Corinthians 12. Paul says, see if you can figure who he's talking about. It gets a little tricky. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weaknesses. Even if I should choose to boast, I would not be a fool because I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain, so no one will think more of me than is warranted by what I do or say, or because of these surpassingly great revelations. Therefore, in order to keep me, <laughs> he's talking about a man, now he's talking about me. Therefore, in order to keep me from being, becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan, to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I'm weak, then I am strong. This is tricky. Uh, he starts this story talking about knowing a man who 14 years ago had this stuff happen to him. And halfway through this passage, that man all of a sudden becomes the I, becomes the me. So this is really strange. But this is Paul. And he starts, it seems like he, to keep some distance, maybe he starts talking about himself in the third person. And then at some point or another, he slips because he's telling his own story, right? If you're trying to make up a story about yourself, but in the third person, you could see how maybe after a while you might slip. It seems like he slips into the first person. It's a weird thing. So possibly more than any passage in the New Testament, or at least up there, this is up there with Jesus in John 8 when they throw the woman who's caught in adultery before him, and it says Jesus starts writing in the sand essentially to shame the Pharisees and shame the ones who would castigate her. It says he starts writing in the sand. Uh, and pastors and theologians and teachers for millennia have been claiming that they know what he was writing. There have been over 100 legitimate suggestions for what he was writing in the sand. So if anyone ever says, this is what he was writing, 
take it with a grain of salt and, and you know, know that there's some serious debate there. In the same way, uh, people have guessed at what this thorn in the flesh is that Paul mentions. Uh, you know, God gives Paul this ecstatic vision of heaven that helps propel him. Can you imagine getting beaten as many times as he has then shipwrecked and, and robbed and all of these lists of woes that he goes through? It would be easy to sort of pack it up or give up or just stay in one place, right? And kind of chill out, right? Maybe just stay in Ephesus or just stay in Colossae. But instead he keeps going and rehashing through all of these difficulties, And so it seems like God gives him this vision of what's ahead to propel him, to encourage him, to keep him excited about what's to come. But then it says that he cannot share about it. It's too great. He's not allowed to share what he's seen. And then to humble him from what he's seen of the greatness of heaven, to humble him, he is given this thorn in the flesh. And again, if someone tells you they know what it is, don't believe it, okay? Just know that there's decent guesses out there. There's probably four or five really good guesses, and we don't know. Some have suggested it's an illness. It seems that Paul had some kind of an eye problem, um, scales on his eyes, something with the eyes. It could be that. It could be another kind of illness or any number of diseases. Others have gone the emotional route, suggesting some kind of depression, anxiety, something like that. That would certainly fit with some of his writings. Um, he talks about dealing with beasts in Ephesus and, and how he was just so driven to despair that he despaired of life itself. So depression is maybe fitting uh, or something like it. Others suggest the pain of his loved ones not believing in the gospel. There's a evidence that he is tormented by not just the Jews in general, but by his loved ones not coming to believe in Jesus. And then uh, N.T. Wright, again in this book, even suggests uh, a possible recurring nightmare over the stoning, the, the, the murder of Stephen, and then him kind of being the one who organizes this whole thing. Uh, and there's some evidence for this because when Paul later addresses the Jewish people after a kind of riot in the temple, he uses the exact same words that Stephen does when Stephen starts his speech. So it seems like Paul has not been able to forget that moment. Uh, we can't know. Uh, we can't know what the thorn in his flesh is or a combination of the above or something completely that we haven't guessed at. Uh, But this is the only story, this being caught up into the third heaven, given this thorn in the flesh, not being able to speak about it, is the only specific story we have from these lost 10 years in Tarsus. But we do have a lot of clues. Now, this is really fascinating. Uh, I'll skip over some of this story because we don't have time. But when there's... um, there are some, some Jewish Christians from James, again, the, the Pope, if there is one in the early church, who go up to Tarsus. To, they, in the Bible, they'll often call it Cilicia. Uh, Cilicia is the region. Tarsus is the capital city. And they go up to churches that are up there. So somehow, there are churches in Cilicia. And that should be your first clue as to where we're going with this. The brothers from Jerusalem go up to these churches in Cilicia. And these are the Hebrew Jews who are all circumcised and all follow the dietary codes, right? And then they're going up to Gentile territory with mostly Greek Jewish Christians. And so the Jewish Christians go up there and they're like, what? You guys aren't circumcised. You guys aren't following the dietary laws. You're out. You need to become Jews first in order to become Christians. You have to follow Moses before you can follow Jesus. And that's essentially the primary conflict in Paul's life. The the main conflict that keeps driving in every city he goes to, the, the highlight, the climax of the conflict of his life is dealing with these Jewish Gentile fights. Uh, that's why Paul rises to the top of this, because again, as a Jewish Pharisee zealot 
raised likely a slave in Tarsus in a Greek area. He happens to speak both Gentile and Jew fluently, and he gets both groups. And that's why later Barnabas goes and snatches him out of oblivion in Tarsus and is like, Antioch's in trouble, we need your help, come. And then that's when Paul becomes the Paul that we really know in all the letters. Uh, So anyway, there's this council at Jerusalem and they cause this trouble. And right away, it seems like Paul gets involved to try to solve this trouble, and Paul ends up winning the day. He basically stands Peter and James down and says, you guys are dead wrong. Jesus didn't come so that everyone has to be Jews first and then Christians. He came for the whole world, you know, Jew first, but also the Greek. And Paul essentially won the day, and the rest of the church realized, okay, we made a mistake, you're right, Uh, which is amazing. And you can see why he's called to be the one who he is. You can read about that uh, disagreement. In Galatians 2, he tells this story. You might miss it, though, because he talks about arguing face-to-face with Peter, and he calls Peter by his Aramaic name, which is Cephas. Sometimes Jesus will call Peter Cephas. That's, that's Peter. Uh, and so Paul will talk about how he sort of challenged him face-to-face. Uh, and they're, they're buddies. They're friends, and they, they go on to be working, workers together in Rome, and they're killed on the same day, martyred on the same day. So we know that it wasn't like a, something that ruined their relationship, that people came to see it Paul's way. Anyway, this church in Jerusalem dealing with this issue in the whole um, follow-up to this problem, they're writing to churches that are in Cilicia. So we know that there are multiple churches in Cilicia, the area of Tarsus where Paul is from, where he's spending this time. And we also know that when Antioch, probably the biggest church at the time, has major crises involving Jews and Gentile relations, that they're like, we need help and Barnabas isn't enough. We've got to find someone. And they go get Paul. They go on foot to find him and say, please come and help us. Which gives a lot of people enough reason to believe that not only is Paul involved in these churches in Tarsus, but he's maybe one of the main leaders or helping to start them. So there are probably church plants and letters and ministry of Paul that's happening for 10 years that we have no record of. He's probably planting, starting, leading churches near Tarsus for 10 years that we have no record of. And that's why he's on the disciples' radar as the guy to fix these issues later in Antioch. So that's probably what Saul or Paul is up to. And we get a few other clues. It seems like uh, not only that he's been involved in church leadership and church planting, but it also seems from a number of little clues in his letters that he suffers deeply from heartache in his family. Um, Again, he doesn't say, he doesn't come out directly and say this, but you could imagine that if you are an Orthodox Jew raised in a zealous, violent-committing, violence-committing Pharisee family, that if you come to believe in Jesus, maybe some of your relatives will, and it seems like some of his relatives did become Christians, but maybe it would also be likely that not all of them would, or many of them would not follow Jesus. And we get these recollections throughout where he is clearly dealing with heartache. Uh, and so you can, you can Again, you're kind of casting out a net into the deep and trying to pull back evidence. He seems to have major heartache and fallout with his family. Some of his family become believers. Some get mentioned, but like his father, mother, a lot of others don't get mentioned in scripture uh, for someone who gets so much time otherwise. And a lot of people think it's because his family in many ways has disowned him. We can't know this for sure, but there's good evidence for it. The way he talks in Romans 9, 1 through 5 about how he would give up his own soul just so that the people he knows the other Jews that he knows could know Christ. You get the sense he's not just talking about like Jewish brothers and sisters all around. You get the sense he's talking about actual family members, that he is just begging God that these actual family members would come to know Jesus. And also, here's another thing that people have wondered about, which we can't know for sure. Uh, it would be almost unheard of 
for a man of his age to be unmarried. Actually, it, would, it was unheard of for a Jewish man, you know, in his 20s, 30s, 40s, then 50s, 60s to be unmarried. And so it's almost sure that as an Orthodox Jew, he would have either been married and then widowed, or if that's, if that's the right word, widower, whatever, uh, that he would have been married and then his wife died, or that he, and this is what N.T. Wright tends to think in his book, and I tend to agree with him, that he was betrothed, that he was engaged. Right? He was off studying in Jerusalem, but you know, when he was maybe 10 or 12, his family had chosen a nice little Orthodox Jewish girl in Tarsus, and they would eventually, when they were both older, marry. Uh, so that if they're both young, you know, they're kind of like destined for each other, right? Then Paul goes off and does his studies, and then maybe when he's in his early 20s, he comes back and marries a girl about his own age. Uh, a lot of scholars think that he would have been betrothed to a woman, because again, it would have been unheard of for him not to be, given his position, but that when he goes to Jerusalem and then goes to Damascus, meets Jesus on the way and becomes this Christian, that when he then returns to Tarsus for these 10 years, that this betrothal, this, this engagement would have been uh, broken off, that he, he clearly never did marry, or, or he didn't marry, in, as far as we know, in his letters. He could have been married earlier, and she died, or maybe more likely, he could have been engaged, and then that engagement was broken off because of his change in status or religious belief. And so when you see some of this heartache toward his family, and then some of his talk about singleness, uh, he leaves a lot of clues. We can't go into it specifically. Um, but he even gives... He even gives an excuse for, for people who, you know, if, like a, if a believing man should come to faith or a believing woman, then their engaged partner can leave them if they don't agree with them. And it, you get a, a sense this is a very particular, specific thing that he's mentioning. So that's what maybe happened in these 10 years, that he started or at least helped to lead these churches. He made a name for himself as the one who could more, maybe better than anyone else, lead these Gentile Jewish race relations um, and that then he would have also had these family difficulties that he seems to allude to all throughout his life. And so I, I tell you this not so much to preach one passage of Paul. This is clearly less of a normal sermon, a little bit more of um, a teaching. It's meant to tee us up to understand all of Paul, because I know that I, at this point, I won't be able to be with you guys much longer, at least full-time here at Capital City, but you will go on throughout the rest of your lives to read Paul. And I want you to truly know and truly feel those teachings as coming from a living person and a living soul with pains and hopes and emotions and loves just like you. And once you know he was likely a slave, that he was maybe likely betrothed, that he, he had this amazing calling, but also all these personal pains and maybe family trauma, abandonment, it allows you to see him as a, a person and not just a brain on a stick. And it allows you to read his letters better and maybe more often. I've been reading Paul more often just for fun while I've been preaching through this. And I think and I hope it would allow you to like him more and to connect with him more. Um, I've heard recently a number of stories of people who on purpose will not read Paul because they have some sort of bone to pick with him or, or because we often teach him out of context, we don't fully understand him. Uh, so I was reading an account recently in the 1950s of a woman who was a, she had grown up in like the last little throes of slavery before emancipation. And then in the 1940s or 50s, she was recording her story. And she just said, and this is just devastating. She's like, you know, I've had to make my peace with God over reading most of the New Testament, but I won't read Paul because when I was a slave and they would 
uh, allow the slaves to occasionally hear you know, the, the preacher, like they'd bring the white preacher and they wouldn't allow them their own preacher, but they'd bring the white preacher in and this, the preacher would almost always pick a passage that when ripped out of context seemed to justify slavery rather than what we've been talking about here, like Philemon and others that clearly dismantle it. And of course, if you take Paul out of context and don't remember that the early church said he was a slave, if it, it just, it gets it all wrong. So this woman is saying, I can't read Paul. And I know many women today, because of how we rip his teachings on relations in the church, a lot of women today are afraid to read Paul or choose not to read Paul because they, they're not sure if he's a misogynist. They don't really know how to take him. And so we've also preached through some of Paul's teachings on women as well, because I want you guys to, to read him, to love him, to know him, and to know that these portrayals that we get of him are not correct right? That he's not a misogynist. He doesn't advocate for slavery. In fact, if anything, he likely grew up a slave himself. Uh, And more than anyone in the New Testament, he is this clear-headed genius, probably one of the most gifted geniuses of the entire ancient world. And he happens to, fortunately for us, be in our tradition here. I want you to be able to read truly the man who prayed to God for this, that he says, I pleaded with the Lord to take this thorn away from me. But the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That's why, for Christ's sake, I delight in my weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And I pray that you guys, you would all continue to read scripture, to read Paul. And unlike almost anyone else, that just the way that he understood how God's power comes through in weakness, I pray that you too would understand how God's grace is sufficient for you and that God's grace is made perfect and his power is made perfect in your own weaknesses. So with that, I'll I'll close for today uh, and I'll pray to wrap our time up. Father, we thank you that your grace is sufficient for us and that your power is made perfect in weakness. And we pray that as we seek you in our own prayer and in our own scripture reading, that we would understand that your grace is sufficient and that we would see how through our own weaknesses, you are often expressing your power. Uh, We just pray you'd be with us this week. Teach us in your name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com. dot